Thanks for checking out another Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. On this episode, we're talking to Australian editor Sean Layeth about editing the Netflix feature I Am Mother, which stars Hilary Swank. As a VFX editor, he's worked on numerous films, including Gravity, Prometheus, The Hunger Games, and Harry Potter. As an editor, he's worked on numerous films, including being nominated for an Australian Screen Editors Award for Best Editing in a feature film for 2017's Jungle. We talked over Skype with Sean calling in from Tasmania. Let's talk a little bit about I Am Mother. There's like a long intro for those people who haven't seen it. The intro goes quite a while before you hear any dialogue whatsoever. And then finally you get to dialogue. And I, I was thinking that must have been a difficult transition from one to the other. Yeah, yeah we didn't, you know, we, we had a lot of footage to work with. So it could have gone for much longer. But, you know, you can only hold out for so long, really. At the same time, saying that, we, we sort of had to make sure we took our time with setting up the world and creating that mystery of sort of where are we, what's happened up, up above you know, on the surface. And then I think I think the text helped us a lot in sort of setting up our actual beginning. It's, it's been so many days since that extinction level event when the when the film started. And here we are approximately X amount of years later. Here's our main character. And we could only hold out so long basically from when we had to sort of kick into meeting our, our main character. The whole start of the film, the first act, was was one that probably changed the most because we had sort of multiple beginnings. We had waking up with mother, that was one beginning. We had meeting meeting daughter and the sort of growing up montage, that was sort of another beginning. And then by the time um, daughter is 17 years old, we're sort of at our third beginning of the film. So the whole montage idea was always designed to be a montage of daughter growing up. Was Baby Mine always uh, in the script as the montage, or is that something that you? Yeah, it was. It was experimented with. Yeah, it was designed from the from the beginning as a um, because in, later on in the film, um, daughter remembers her sort of upbringing, and she sort of takes on singing that song to her baby brother. So that was always designed to be um, a key piece that would play out in the beginning, yeah. I've talked to a lot of editors about trying to get to a certain point. This is what we were just talking about. We've got to get her to when she's 17 years old. Like, obviously, we need setup and all that stuff, but eventually the audience is going to say, where's the story going? What was that moment that you were like, we have got to get to this point in the story? The biggest point and, and the discussion around the point we've got to get to is woman rocking up at the bunker. That was the, the biggest thing that was discussed in terms of we've got to get there sooner. It's got to be impact, as impactful as anything else in the movie there. Um, daughter's spent 17 years on her own and somebody's rocking up and knocking on the door. That was kind of the key point that we were sort of striving to work towards this the whole time. So daughter's upbringing. We really had to make sure that people understood that she was lonely and the, the dynamic between mother and daughter and I like the theology lesson she has in her sort of school setup was one that went backwards and forwards a little bit in terms of duration and, and not dwelling on it for too long but also needing to understand mother's point of view on the world and humans but it was definitely woman rocking up at the bunker that sort of formed the biggest waypoint to hit um, sooner rather than later. I think that it turned out to be a good sort of medium of not rushing daughter's coming of age and sort of growing up. Yeah, I felt like we hit the mark pretty well with that. 
That whole opening montage, it's not really about story. Like you don't really have to understand too much about plot points. It's really about understanding the two characters or specifically the daughter character. You know, what were some of your decisions where you were like, I got all this footage. What do I want to show people about daughter that's going to make the rest of the story work? Well, it was the innocence of everything. I mean, the innocence of, of a young child growing up being raised by a a robot you know she plays with stickers and she's sort of trying to learn origami and making mistakes and it's a robot but she's still a mother like she's still playing that role there were some scenes that had a lot like a lot more straightforward scenes that had young daughter talking to mother and they were the scenes that we felt dragged the pace on a bit too much so we ended up using those conversations over other footage of you know, like sitting in that beautiful sunlight and playing with the toys and, and we're sort of hearing words but not necessarily seeing mouths moving and we sort of took that artistic licence to kind of montage it up and just to keep things moving. It was those more straightforward dialogue scenes that we, in the edit, decided should sort of be sort of put aside, still use the information and the snippets of words and conversations like when am I going to get a brother when am I going to have siblings um you know we were on characters for the most important lines but at the same time we certainly didn't hesitate to montage that stuff up a bit just to keep it all moving did you have cuts of those scenes originally where they were full dialogue scenes yeah definitely it all um I'd always edit everything so I mean we had quite a long first assembly yeah, look, the scenes were whole and, and they were good. They were shot beautifully. They were acted well. And, you know, you could temp score them beautifully. And it was all, and that, that's sort of when it becomes tough. That's the hardest bit is, is knowing what to sort of cut down and when things are dragging. I mean, it's easy to put two shots together and make the edit point work. But it's that, it's the overall thing that, yeah, that takes the real thinking. I'm always interested in that because, of course, you're getting dailies in every day and you get one of those dialogue scenes and you cut it figuring, hey, it's in the script. It's exactly. going to be in the movie. I'm going to cut this thing. It's going to be gorgeous. I'm going to be, I'm yeah. going to kill it. <laughs> and there's, you know, how, how many crew members downstairs slaving away, trying to get every shot, every setup, every line of dialogue recorded as clearly as possible. And you know, there's so many people, so many cogs sort of in the, the clockwork to bring you this amazing footage. And then you just cut, cut it out <laughs> sometimes, you know. It's, um, yeah, so it's good to be, keep, keep your distance a little bit. You said that first assembly was fairly long, like everybody's is. How long, do you remember how long the first assembly was? Probably about two and a half hours. And that was, that was with everything in it, full scenes and, and what have you. So it wasn't, wasn't mass. I've had longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're watching this two and a half hour assembly and you're going, oh my gosh, it's 45 minutes or something before we get to the, the woman ar arriving at the front door. We got to get this down. We got to cut at least 15 minutes or something like that. Talk to me about yeah. those decisions that had to be made and, and where you came up with the realization, oh, you know, we could take these dialogue scenes and, and montage them. We realized that it was 10 minutes or so until daughter's 17. And that was, that was just too long. That was way too long especially later on in the editing process when it turns out that that was just another child and not actually daughter. We had to lure the audience into a false sense that this is actually daughter and we join her growing up again. You know, once we constructed the idea that that young girl in the beginning wasn't daughter, we sort of knew that we could sort of spend a little bit less time with her. Um, so that was one sort of realisation that helped us cut a bit of time out. Um, also, the, the piece of, like, the lullaby, the um, baby mine, 
we wanted really wanted it to fit into that piece of music and so that also guided us a bit with the montage to sort of keep things fairly restrained and and not dwell on things for too long like we quickly learned how much over it was going to be once it got to the edit room but so the baby of mine was another sort of factor that yeah guided us and just sitting down to watch the film through by the time woman rocking up to the door and being yeah 45 minutes through you sort of it was the um the opening that kind of had to come down yeah, you've mm-hmm. edited a lot of uh, a lot of movies, and uh, don't you find that that's so much the case that it's the open that gets cut the most? It's dangerous though because you need this character development or people, especially with genre stuff. You need the character development, or people won't care as much about them. You really need to create these characters that people can relate to, that they love, that they want to watch, and then when they're in trouble, you really feel for them. And so, it was a difficult. It was difficult, definitely difficult. Yeah, it was like it was similar to the other things like horror and what have you in that yeah, you really need all that juicy character development stuff. Knowing, you know, learning that daughter's really lonely and seeing how sort of mundane life can be if you're a seventeen year old teenager stuck underground. Like you need to have long pauses and drawn out birthday dinners with your robot mum. We we didn't want to rush through that stuff. So we it was sort of a bit of a give a give or take with those longer shots and longer scenes. Lee Smith, I've talked to because he's film doctored a lot of movies, and he said that invariably when he goes in and film doctors a movie, it's not the shot-to-shot editing stuff that's a problem. It's usually because somebody's rushed the open. Right. Rushed the development. Right. That's really interesting. Character development often comes back as as a point in reviews as well. Like you're often trying to do one thing for producers and notes where you're trying to get get to the exciting stuff as soon as you can. But at the same time, that's at the cost of, yeah, character development and, and critic reviews. That's the super tough balancing act, I think, right there is rushing that or sitting on it too long where the audience is bored. Um, hey, uh, one of the interesting things that I really liked in the editing of this was the intercutting of the daughter taking the psych exam. Her mom has her take the psychological exam and the mother is looking through the backpack and you're intercutting between the two of them. Do you remember, was that scripted exactly the way it was or did you find that you needed to, to massage the points where it cut from one storyline to another? It definitely needed to be massaged. I can't actually remember whether it was scripted or not. I suspect it was, but definitely an organic process of, of trying to find out how much time we spend with the exam and then, yeah, intercutting to that mother sort of investigating. And, you know, ramping up as the score sort of builds and, and you can sort of ramp up the pace. But, yeah, that took a lot of investigating and sort of, again, that was a sequence that went for a lot longer. But after a few intercuts, the audience kind of knows what's happening and you can kind of speed that up a little bit. I sort of understand the visual language of, of what was going on. So we didn't need to um, spend so long establishing which room mother was in or what have you. We could just sort of jump in and we see close-ups of items from the bag being put down and rifled through. We don't have to see sort of wide shots. Oh, she's in this room. Oh, she's got the bag. As soon as we see what she's doing, like putting things down, we sort of click and get it. So yeah, it was sort of a, an organic process of trial and error really. 
I don't know when you like to, as an editor, put music or temp score in, but when you're doing those kind of intercuttings, does the temp score help either change the rhythm or speed the pace or what does temp score do for you when you're doing that kind of thing? Um, it definitely helps. It, it, it was very helpful for us and the director, well, both of us really worked a, a bit on in this film overall, but yeah, especially the exam. It does speed up. Like, you know, we definitely tried to find a piece of music that increased in pace as the exam went on and as the, she started answering questions quicker and quicker and, you know, cutting to her rowing and it definitely influenced it. And we were, we were wary of it. Like we tried playing it without the music so that we made sure we weren't being falsely led down a, a path that we couldn't then live up to once the actual score was done. But we were sort of reassured when we did that, when we tested it without score. Yeah, it plays a massive role. I think with the genre stuff, it just helps build that world a little bit more as well. Even in the edit room, just to create that experience of, you know, watching one of these films. It's such a massive part of it, the score. Yeah, I'm a big fan of temp scoring. It can sort of end up meaning there's a lot for the composer to live up to, if you, you know. <laughs> Did you, yeah, did you do anything to try to combat that? Did you use music from the composer or did you, what, what kind of temp did you use? Um, we sort of used temp score from films like Arrival, Ex Machina, even a little bit of Dunkirk, <laughs> just uh, uh, Interstellar. It's sort of a bit of a pattern emerging here. We, we used pretty world-class score as temp. And that, yeah, that was sort of big inspirations for us. The composer didn't sort of come on until a little bit later. We were all ready, ready, well into the editing process by the time you know there was sort of actual score being done. Tell me about the performances of mother against the daughter. I don't know how that worked in filming, but were you trying for mother to have a more mechanical uh, response time, and so you paced it differently because she's a robot, or were you trying for a true human interaction between those two characters? That's a good question. <clears throat> we didn't want her to be too. We didn't want mother to be too sort of robotic. Robotics now and engineering, it's, you know, Boston Dynamics and what have you, and even with Siri on the smartphone, they're so quick and lifelike now. So we didn't want to play too much into the trope of, you know, classic bad robot type of film. We had Luke Hawker, who was the performer inside the robot, who also um, led the team to construct it at Weta. I take my hat off to him. He, it was all of Daughter's performances were bounced off, like it was Luke in the robot suit. He was delivering the lines with gusto and heart and emotion and he sort of needed to so that Daughter could, could sort of get into the mood of it all. And in the edit, we had that for a long time, for a couple of months. Well, for months, we had just Luke's voice. You could hear the internal fans sort of blaring. And so we didn't have that sort of soft, almost eerie take on it, which Rose Byrne later brought to the, the role. It was like you had two actors. I mean, it was just like another actor, you know, mother would sort of say a line, Luke would say a line and then tilt her head and the robotics guys would sort of twist her iris as a little expression, add a little smile after saying something, you know, witty or what have you. Like, Mother's been designed to raise babies. I mean, you can't be too cold and distant. There needs to be a bit of um, warmth and care about her. In terms of her response time as well, we didn't want to just mechanically throw back responses straight away after daughter said something. Mother has to also act as close as she can to a human. She also considers things and there's awkward pauses that even mother has, you know, which for us added a bit of mystery and uncertainty about what mother was saying and whether it was true or not. 
So it's just like playing with another actor in the edit, and you have to sort of treat it that way. I love that. Two things to talk about, because I'm really interested in the fact that you spent so much time with, you said Luke is the performer inside the robot, right? So with Luke's yeah. voice and the, and, the, and the fan noise and all that, I can't believe that you left that in, didn't try to substitute out a female voice, even if it was a scratch track, because... Uh, in Detective Pikachu, they pre-recorded all of the voice of Ryan Reynolds. So even though he wasn't there and that was an animated character, they didn't just have some guy like reading his lines. They had the actual actor reading the lines from the very, very beginning, from before the edit, actually, right. which I thought was brilliant. And then I just cut a film where the director read the lines because most of the lines were on a phone. And the director read the lines against the actress, but the delivery was not good. Like you said, your de- delivery was good. His delivery was good. Yeah. Mine was not. And I couldn't deal with the lack of emotion in this main character. Right. So I replaced that stuff immediately. You guys were able to live with it and, and understand, oh, this is going to get replaced. Yeah, I mean, we got really used to it too. And it was sort of, I mean, Luke would sort of put on a slightly androgynous voice like he wouldn't it wasn't a typical deep toned sort of man man's voice or anything but we all got really used to it and when the time actually came to replace it all with rose burns voice it took a bit of adjusting it definitely changed things our first screenings you know we're showing to investors and what have you it was all with luke's luke's voice and we just sort of had to explain that look this will change but we think it does the job for now. Um, no no feeling like, oh, we should replace this with an assistant editor's voice or a temp voiceover. We or... thought about it, but then considered... How much work it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, how much work it was going to be. And we actually just really thought Luke did a great job at it. So we, we weren't too right. concerned by it. And yeah, we only got Rose Byrne sort of later in the, in the process. So, and that was an interesting... You know, having to go back through the entire film and replay, that was something that myself and the director did, not the sound editor or a dialogue editor or the sound people. It was a, it was myself and the director sort of choosing, you know, building a sentence out of takes from, you know, a couple of words from take one, a couple of words from take four, a few, you know. It was a, a real sort of construct of like an amalgamation of all of the Rose's takes. It was good in a way because we were able to create a slightly, you know, it wasn't too human. We could sort of jumble things up a little bit, but we had to fit it in in amongst sort of iris spins and head tilts and we sort of manipulated it quite a lot to make sure that, you know, yeah, we sort of sat everything back in exactly how we'd, um, we'd done it originally. Yeah, no, I completely understand. It changes the performance and the feel when you've got somebody new and their pacing is a little different. Did she obviously ADR it? Did she ADR it against yeah. your edited version? Yes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about sound effects and um, how sound effects help with the realism of the movie and and developing the world that you're in. There was another big thing. Um, I mean, in all of my edits, I, I do go to quite extreme lengths to create a good, a really engrossed, like a, an immersive soundscape, just like, you know, for science fiction and horror and what have you, because it's such an escapist sort of genre, you need to be able to suck people in. I spent a fair bit of time sound editing. We worked with the sound designers, so there was there were elements that we were able to sort of ask them for. The assistant editor, Reg Squarko, would, would go hunting for bits and pieces to lay into the edit too. Coming up with a the amount of roboticness about 
mother's voice was a big thing in the edit? Like how much of a robot do we make her sound like? Is she, is her voice going to be affected a lot? Or are we just going to go for the more like Siri kind of approach, like on a mobile phone, you know, because she sound, Siri sounds quite human and it was all trial and error as well. Like it was easy to go way too big and way too over the top with, with um, temping in all these sound effects that sometimes it did either get a bit cheesy or, or you know, just too much. So we sort of drop things down a little bit, be a bit more sort of sophisticated about it, I suppose you could say, um, and just not fall into the, again, the classic tropes of robot movies. We had to um, be smart, smart about it. But look outside and with big aerial drones flying in and, you know, it was a, there was a lot of stuff to play with, lots of different, you know, furnaces, blast furnaces and embryo chambers and, you know, cryo, cryovac. There was all sorts of stuff we had to hunt and dig around for. A lot of work went into attempting and the, the sound team were very thankful that we'd done so much to help guide them in there in what they were about to face because then we handed over the sound and, and they had to sort of start again so yeah it plays a big role in all the films I edit definitely temping all the sound and yeah and it is it's to create that world and that immersive experience not just for temp screenings and investor screenings and audience test screenings but for the day-to-day -day editing of the movie like we ourselves me and the director love this stuff so we wanted to set ourselves in the world the character Actors that we're sort of editing and doing great sound work that have made us really believe we were there with them. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and see a lot of parts of science fiction or horror movies where they don't have the, the either the score or the sound effects in. And you watch Star Wars or something, and you go, this is the worst movie I have ever seen. Without that sound, you're fooled into thinking maybe your edits aren't good or yeah. the scene isn't working or something. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as a, again, as a bit of a test, we could, we, we could play things without sound or we play things silent. And, and just pressure test and, and check that things are still working. But my goodness, yeah, definitely. You need that sound to help sell the, sell the ideas sometimes. You see, I looked through your IMDb page and you seem to have done a lot of these kind of either sci-fi movies or horror movies. And they are very reliant on that sound. So I'm sure you've gotten very good at uh, <laughs> the sound yeah. design part. It's definitely become part of my day-to-day -day job. It's definitely, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and I enjoy it. I really, really enjoy it. I feel like I've had to become quicker at editing so I can fit in my sound work too. <laughs> even assemblies, even presenting first-time assemblies, I'll at least you know put, put in Atmos tracks and do a first pass on sound effects and maybe even temp score sometimes just to convey you know the mood the tone of things because um, it can be hard to watch such isolated scenes if you're getting the scene 30 and scene 90 on the same day you kind of need to you know the director i think they feel a bit more comfortable if they can get a better picture of how it might end up at the end of the day so putting in a bit of sound and score can help to build their own confidence while they're shooting so they know they're on the right path you've also worked a lot with vfx in the past um for some pretty big movies and what kind of skill set do you bring or do you feel like you can help with where VFX is helping you in your editing day on a movie like this? I came to be an editor through assisting and visual effects editing. In my day-to-day -day editing, it lets me not be too bound by the footage in front of me that's being shot. I think I can more easily imagine how that footage can be manipulated or what could be added to that footage or what could be taken out or split screening or fluid morphing. Yeah, just to not be too bound by that frame. 
You know, I've got a, a, the frame is made up of different ingredients. There's an actor here, there's an actor there. You don't have to use that whole take. You can use half of frame on that take and the other half of frame from the other take. And, you know, we can superimpose things in the background. I, I, it definitely has sort of grown to be a very helpful tool, like the understanding of visual effects and what can be done. You talked about fluid morphs and split screens. I would think that because you've got an actor performing inside of a robot, but then also, as you said, other people were making kind of expressions on the face of the robot that maybe some of those timings might have not quite hit the mark. Did you do any of that kind of split screen yeah, kind it, of thing? Yeah, definitely. That, um, not as much as you might think, but there were a good few handfuls of times we turned to fluid morphing and split screening with Mother. I guess the biggest example of where fluid morphs and split screening was an amazing help to storytelling was when Daughter found out you know, she, she wasn't the only child and that she wasn't the first child. We really needed a way to stylistically exaggerate or um, hang on to this feeling, that this devastation. We sort of got a bit creative with hearing voices over footage of seeing actors not talking. Like, so you're sort of hearing their voices, but they're not talking. And this one moment where you can hear the conversation between daughter and woman and daughter's approaching this glass and woman's already standing there. She's walking up and you can hear the dialogue this whole time. And then when she reaches the glass, the dialogue catches up to the point in the conversation. So it's, hard, it's a hard thing to kind of explain, but you'll know it when you see it. And there were probably about six fluid morphs on woman's side, probably about 10 fluid morphs on daughter's side to kind of jump through, and the split screen, to kind of jump through that conversation and their, their reactions to the lines and things. It was like a big, um, a bit of a mess on the timeline, but it, it, it certainly uh, helped create this kind of stylized moment um, sort of that helped us sort of live live this experience through daughter and what have you. Yeah, it was just this long-winded way of saying how useful fluid morphs and split screening can be to influence your style. Um, From a VFX editor's standpoint, I'm always kind of worried that if I use those fluid morphs that they're not going to be able to pull them off in the DI or the online of the project. If you're using D um, DNX 36, it, you can get away with a lot more than if you're using sort of DNX or higher quality DNX footage like 115 or something because it can fudge the pixels together a bit easier. But yeah, there were certainly some that had to go to VFX and that couldn't just be done in DI. Some had to go to flame, some had to, um, uh, yeah, there was definitely some trickier ones. But funnily enough, there are also a few that just went back to Avid and finished in high res on the Avid and then and then ingested back into the DI timeline. So um, just because Avid could do it better than the other, the other software. That's really interesting. You've directed a bunch of stuff. Tell me a little bit about how either your editing informs your directing or vice versa. Yeah, I've sort of directed a few shorts and a couple of TV things. It's sort of, um, it's a great advantage being an editor and, and going to direct, stepping in to direct something because you know exactly what you need. You, you can be, um, you can be very efficient on set and confident. You know, if you know you've got something, you can move on instead of having to get take after take or set up after set up. It's a great duo. Like I think in the edit room, even assistant editing, you get to learn so much about directing, like what, what you need to tell the story. Story. When editing, you can see the development of performances as well. 
you can hear the director sometimes if you're lucky sort of talking to the actors and you can see how performances change over the course of a setup you know take one might be you know really big in performance and then they tone it down or you know they might build it back up and what have you so you you, you keep visioning you keep envisioning yourself back in the edit room when you're on set directing going oh how am I going to deal with this or how if I got enough what I need um, so it's really valuable I think it's a great crossover being able to do both um, directing is definitely a much less regular thing that I, I sort of would do if I get the time and if the opportunity presents itself um, yeah did you edit everything you directed or do you try to say hey look I would love to have another set of eyes I want another direct another editor when I'm directing something there was one th a documentary I did for television which another editor did, which was great, being able to step back and have that distance and that other... I mean, the editor brings so much and I didn't want to sell myself short and not have that second set of eyes. But in terms of all my short films and things, I definitely just edited, edited them myself and also out of a, a budgetary thing. You know, we couldn't necessarily afford to pay someone to do it, so I jumped in and did it. And I'll always have a tweak and a fiddle with a few scenes, like on the TV thing, but it was great having it an editor that, that would be the preferred approach i think um in the future sure. yeah as long as i could jump in and have a little tweet like, yeah how much yeah. do you rely on your assistance for another set of eyes another set of opinions What's that relationship like with between you and your assistant editor? It's pretty strong in the creative sense in that I, I will always, if I'm stuck on something or not sure, I'll definitely call upon on them for their opinion, their creative opinion for the, how something's sort of working or not working. I love also involving them, love giving them the opportunity to have a go at cutting scenes themselves. Just having that opportunity to work with sort of higher quality footage than what they might use, be used to cutting themselves. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very collaborative process, not just not just a technical thing it's always a and, it, and it's great and producers see that interaction bet between me and the assistants and then they'll also ask questions of the assistant like what do you think of this scene or do you think their performance is a little bit over the top when you're looking for someone to assist you is that something that you're actively kind of pursuing that that person can provide that kind of feedback how do you find someone that can that you can trust yeah. with that kind of opinion. It's definitely a part of the process, a part of the selection process, you know, and it, it, I think it, it more just comes down to how well I'll get along with somebody, how we sort of click as a team. I don't think that it is solely reliant on purely technical or purely creative. I think it's just a lot of it comes down to how well you work together. And I think through that sort of working together, you become comfortable and you sort of feel a bit more able to share things. Trying to gauge how creative someone might be when searching for an assistant and it's not a big part of choosing. Um, it just sort of grows a bit out of the out of the uh, working relationship after we're into the edit a little bit. Um, like what are yeah, what are some of those things that you're looking for when you pick an assistant editor? Speed, accuracy. Accuracy is the big one, I think. And honesty. You know, you need a second set of eyes. Like the director needs a second set of eyes in the editor. The editor needs a second set of eyes in, in the assistant. Like, it's great to be able to just walk in and, and get an honest opinion on something if, if you're not quite sure. You know, you might be having a, a tough day or you might be really stuck on something and to be able to sort of turn around and get an honest answer out of your colleague while the director's off busy shooting, you know, it's a, it's a, a great asset to be able to rely on. And something that I definitely look for is that, that honesty and, and just the click, just getting along and feeling comfortable with an assistant is, yeah, plays a massive 
part in selection. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think also with the honesty, it's a, a slightly different way of being honest, but I also always explain to, to my assistants or when I'm trying to pick somebody or be with somebody who's new, it's always like, if you make a mistake, I'm gonna be a forgiving person, but you've got to let me know because if you try to hide the mistake, it's gonna be much more, is much worse than if you just own it. The other thing that I would like to talk about, that I always talk about with everybody is approach. When you are looking at dailies and you don't necessarily know what scenes are coming from or what they're going to other than in the script, what do you do with a blank timeline? What's, what's when you walk in in the morning and you've got a blank timeline? It's, yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's one I like to ask other editors. I like to, I like to find out from other editors what, how they start a scene, how they, they, get a, they get a bin, it's full of great footage. Where do you start? I don't get too hung up on the beginning and the ending of the scene. Um, sometimes I'll jump to where dialogue might start, for example, and start editing together the conversation. I'll look at the coverage, I'll check performances and sort of find the, the, best, the best performance and sort of build it around the, the conversation around that. When footage is coming in during the shoot, you don't you might have the connecting scenes on either side, so they often change the beginnings and ends. Often, also the you know if the director's shot the beginning of a scene in a particularly stylized way, or if there's a special camera move that they definitely want to use, I'll often be able to pick that out, and I'll recognise oh they're doing you know this reveal bit you know past something to start the scene off. So I'll sort of look for camera moves and things like that, which might inform stylistic decisions, but. Yeah, generally it's sort of building around the best performance and just trying to start off with something easy, something just to get in backwards and forwards into the conversation. You know, I sit down with a script and I reread and look through the, all the material, the continuity information and the script supervisor information before I start. And then I just sort of have to dive in. I feel like if I think about it for too long, I'll never get started. I just go on instinct. And that can be starting on medium shots and then punching in for close-ups at a particularly poignant moment in the, in the conversation. Or I'll go back to the beginning of the scene and work out the coolest way to start it. And then I'll go to the end of the scene to sort of, you know, work out when's the soonest I can leave it, when's the coolest way I can finish this scene off. And then after I've got that initial sort of bed, of shots on my timeline, I'll go in and start doing a bit of sound work. If I have a, a thought about a piece of temp score that might lend itself to a scene, I'll put that in. And then I'll usually go back in and do some more fine tuning. Now that I've created that slightly bit better world for the scene to exist in, I can kind of go back in and see it with fresh eyes again and, and make tweaks here and tweaks there. Or I might be able to try a different version that plays a scene more from one of the actors perspectives you know in the grander scheme of the film it might be through this point where daughter for example is having a particularly paranoid time and using a lot more close-ups but if i just get a scene and i don't take in context where that sits in the film it'll just be a lot more um i guess a standard approach it's definitely can be daunting when facing big sequences and you know, scenes that are shot over multiple days where you've just got multiple heaps of scene bins and you don't know where to begin. I always just go to a conversation and just go backwards and forwards and, and get this conversation happening to begin with. 
I find that the easiest way to start. Sure. Um, you, it didn't sound like you use selects reels to do that. Are you jumping straight from your bin and your clips in your bin? Yeah, I don't use selects reels. I mean, if, if there's a lot of sort of um, generic footage shot, like lots of Skype, lots of shots of the sky or, def- or lots of shots of mountains or what have you, I'll definitely do a selects and find the best of the best. But I'm very much a visual person when it comes to remembering. Like I look at a scene bin and I have my thumbnails organised and I can very much remember that one there. You know, remember specific things about that take and that take and I remember this one has that bit in it. And I'm very quick at positioning all the playheads in them so I can go through, like with a director, if I've got a director in the room, I'm very quick at being able to go, here's this line delivery from take one, click. Here's the line delivery from take two, click. Here's it from three. And I'm very good at quickly lining that stuff up and scrolling through and just being able to work from the thumbnails. So I've definitely seen other approaches and I, I know the value of selects reels and line by lines and what have you, but... Yeah, my approach is just the thumbnails and learning. It's like a memory game with cards, you know. Tell me a little bit about the industry in Australia. I don't know that much about it. Like I said, I've interviewed a couple of Australian editors, but I don't know that much about how you guys are doing down there. How's the film industry? What kind of projects you're getting to work on? It's great. There's every, every, it's got everything. It's obviously not as, not as busy as, as what it is in America. I personally have to fly around the country a little bit to work. I'm from South Australia, um, and there's lots happening in South Australia, but often editors will come from other states with their directors, and it just depends. It can be a bit of a a luck of the draw kind of scenario in in getting on things, but there's lots of genre stuff being made, dramas, uh, television, war films, science fiction, action. And in terms of budget, a lot more independent sort of scaled projects. But we do get studio pictures coming to, to film, like with the Pirates of the Caribbean's films, they'd come and shoot here. And uh, South Australia actually just uh, locked in Mortal Kombat, a big film that's happening down there. That's massive. It's a 70 or $80 million film. It'll create 500 jobs. You know, how many of those key creative roles are done by South Australians? I'm not sure. You know, the studios would obviously need to be confident in a DOP and an editor and a production designer, you know, at the helm of an $80 million movie. But, yeah, there's certainly lots of jobs for sort of the infrastructure behind getting a film made. In terms of editors, there's a great calibre of editors in Australia. Um, We have the Australian Screen Editors Guild. There's everything here. I mean, I get to work on films like Mother. I mean, that was a... That's the kind of stuff I grew up watching and that inspired me to become a, you know, to, to get into making films is that sort of science fiction and that sort of darker genre stuff. So to be able to edit films like that in my in Australia has been a, a dream. So it's really exciting. There's lots happening. Is there anything else you want to talk about, specifically about mother? Do you feel like that, like you have a great mother story? Yeah, I guess one of the fun things about editing mother was Luke. The first time we really get to see mother in action and running through the corridors of, of the bunker when woman rocks up at the bunker door and daughter opens the flicks the switch and opens the hatch all we had at the time was luke in his underwear sort of standing up from the, the mother's mother's throne and bolting out the door and for so long that's all what was in the edit it would it was this hugely in, intense moment you know, daughter's just let this woman into the bunker for the, you know, she's, oh, my God, there's a hu- another human on this on this planet. All this stuff's going on, and then it'll cut to mother, 
or cut to Luke standing up in his undies and running out of the room. It was just like that for so long. Like me and the director would, became used to it and we could, you know, of course envisage that, you know, this is going to be a really cool CGI shot. But um, it always got a bit of a laugh when we'd show our producers and what have you. But we ended up using a take, swapping it to a take with nobody in, in the frame if we were doing test screenings for audiences or what have you. But like, that was a great sort of fun moment of... of uh, <laughs> having Luke performing in his undies if he had to. <laughs> uh, I love that idea because in reality, that was probably a very critical thing for the director to have given you because then you know how quickly mother has to run, right? You, you get it instead of just a blank, he could have just shot a, a plate, right? But then you'd have to imagine mother standing, getting her speed up and bolting. Yeah, there weren't many CGI mother shots. So if there was something like that, if there was a mother running shot, we were, I would always get um, a version of it with just either Luke or a stunt performer in a blue suit. Like when woman, when Hillary's character dives on the back of mother and sort of, they sort of have that fight, um, that was all on top of a blue suit mother so that we didn't break the one and only mother suit. Yeah, so I always had a, an element of physical um, version of mother in frame. It's fun sort of reliving that and talking about it. Because the films end up taking so long to come out sometimes, you move on to your next edit and the film comes out and then that's sort of like your reward, you know. It's all this public, there's publicity, there's, you know, this social media about this thing that you worked so hard on. You kind of get to, it's a little period of, um, it's like your 15 minutes, finally. It's sort of very delayed. But yeah, you do, you do move on. You do have to move on and get your mind into another set of characters and another director and, and what have you. So I've done a few since Mother already. It was wonderful talking to you. I'm glad that not only your 15 minutes of fame, but now you've got a whole hour of fame to add on to your 15 minutes of fame. Ah, oh dear. No, thanks. It's been great talking to you, Steve. Great to meet you. And um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. It's been wonderful talking to you and uh, good luck on your current projects. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cup podcast. I'd like to thank Michael Zach for volunteering to edit and clean up the audio on this podcast. Also, check out The Art of the Cut on ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Sean Leif. I'm Steve Hullfish. I hope this podcast gave you insight into the editorial process of filmmaking. If so, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend about Art of the Cut and follow me on Twitter at at Steve Hullfish. Mm-hmm.